Welcome to, uh, to this evening's uh, lecture, uh, organised by the Forum for European Philosophy and the uh, Department for Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method. Um, uh, uh, my name is Armin Schultz and it's, uh, it's really my great honour and pleasure to introduce to you uh, tonight's speaker, Dan Hausman. Um, it really is, I think, it really is both an honour and a pleasure. It's an honour because Dan is one of the foremost and sort of most prestigious uh, um, philosophers around right now. He's, uh, he's made seminal contributions to uh, philosophy of social science, particularly philosophy of economics, um, moral philosophy, political philosophy, the relationship between philosophy of economics and issues in economics and moral and political theory. Uh, he's made major contributions to philosophy of science, uh, causal inference, causal explanation, nature of causation, <coughs> uh, a number of, uh, of other areas as well. Um, it's also a, a pleasure to get to introduce Dan because he's not only a great public speaker, but he's also just a really nice person. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> among the you know among the people who make seminal contributions to literature, it's really no guarantee that they're also nice people. But Dan, <laughs> Dan is one of those, and so so it's really great uh, to have him here. And so um, yeah, without further ado, uh, here's Dan Houseman uh, talking. Of telling us about some mistakes about preferences. Uh, well, thanks for the lovely introduction, Armin. I, it's actually a real bummer when somebody introduces you as like this distinguished philosopher, because you know, I mean, you'll, you'll see what I have to say, and I don't know, that's all that distinguished. Uh, and in particular, I actually want to blame what I'm going to say on some of the people here. I learned a lot. Uh, Armin was, uh, 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 just got his PhD from uh, Wisconsin. I was one of the people who was fortunate enough to teach him, and I've certainly borrowed some of the ideas in this, um, in this talk from Armin, and I borrowed things from uh, Richard Bradley, who I've had correspondence with. Uh, and it's, it's actually really great to be back at the LSE. I've, I've spent a fair amount of time here and it's uh, a fair amount of wonderful time here. Uh, this talk is drawn from uh, a book uh, which at the moment just has the tentative title, uh, Preferences, which Cambridge Press is uh, going to be publishing. It'll probably be out sometime uh, uh, next summer. So anyway, here's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about three mistakes. I've listed them. First of all, it's a mistake, uh, I'll argue, to maintain that preferences are matters of taste concerning which rational discussion and criticism is inappropriate. Secondly, uh, it's a mistake to maintain that preference <coughs> rankings are rankings of alternatives entirely in, term, in terms of expected self-interested benefit. And third, that it's a mistake to believe that preferences can be defined in terms of choices as in uh, so-called revealed preference theory. Um, I'm also going to talk about who makes these mistakes. Uh, and um, in some cases, practicing economies, economists make these mistakes in their work, but the mistakes tend to be more common among uh, commentators uh, among economics than they are among practicing uh, economists. I also want to talk about why these mistakes matter. Am I just sort of coming along as a sort of this picky person looking over the shoulder of economists and putting black marks or whatever? And I also want to say something about what's the correct view of what preferences are uh, in ordinary life, but much uh, more importantly, uh, just uh, what they are within economics, because the notion of because preferences are, uh, I think, without question, the central notion in contemporary mainstream economics. 
Okay, so let me first talk a little bit about preferences just in, um, uh, in ordinary language, in ordinary English, because actually the term preference doesn't translate very easily into uh, lots of other languages. When I was giving some lectures, several lectures on preferences in China, I was told that there just simply is no Chinese word that translates um, uh, the uh, English word preference, which probably didn't conduce to a lot of clarity and understanding in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, my lectures, but it was all translated into Chinese and I had no idea what they were talking about anyway. Uh, uh, it was actually amazing. Uh, the, uh, I, I, when I gave these lectures in China, I have a, showed a, a um, PowerPoint slide, talked a little bit in English, and then I had a translator. And the translator was absolutely fantastic. But he would go on for like 10 minutes when I'd only talk for two, and the audience would <laughs> be laughing and having a great time. I, I need him here today, but I, I don't have him. Okay, so anyway, what do we mean when we talk about preferences in everyday life in English? Well, uh, there's at least three senses. One is that we use the term preference when we're just sort of talking about what kinds of things uh, we like better, what sorts of things we enjoyed more. So I might say something like after dinner, you know, I'm, I really preferred my wife's salmon to my tuna. I wish I'd ordered the salmon instead of, um, instead of the tuna. And I gave you a definition from the uh, Oxford English uh, Dictionary that's like this. Secondly, we can use the word preference in, uh, in ordinary language just simply to express uh, what we choose. So the waiter might ask me, uh, you know, what, 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 uh, what will you take? And I'll, I might say, I prefer the tuna, as a way of saying, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's what I've chosen. And we also use the term preference when we're just uh, engaged in comparative uh, uh, evaluation of alternatives. So when I said I uh, prefer Obama to uh, McCain, uh, as I certainly would have said, at least during the, uh, during the election, I wasn't talking about sort of personal liking. I wasn't talking about <coughs> which I chose. I didn't get to choose who would be president of, of the United States. I didn't have that power. I was talking about sort of which I uh, evaluated higher. And when we're evaluating things, we can evaluate things in very partial uh, aspectual ways we can uh, rank things in terms of which of these would be better for me. We can rank things in terms of which of these would um, uh, be better for uh, uh, my neighbor, uh, which of these would result in uh, more happiness, which of these would result in a larger GNP. We can rank things in terms of very specific ways, but when we're engaging in uh, a preference ranking, we're engaged in some sort of overall or total ranking, and I'll be talking about that uh, more later. And uh, the notion of preferences is not something, it's not just something that we talk about in everyday life, it's a crucial notion in economics, and it enters into psychology in, a, in an interesting way, although I don't think I'll have any time to talk about that. So if we're going to look at preferences within economics, since it is uh, in lots of ways, the central notion in economics, you might think that economists would give careful definitions of it. And sometimes they do, but when they give careful definitions, they usually define it in a way that I think is unsustainable. Uh, on the other hand, they, uh, they say a lot about preferences in terms of giving various kinds of axioms or uh, in terms of their practice and using preferences. So the central, the core of economics, 
is uh, what economists would describe as ordinal utility theory. And in terms of preferences, there's two central preferences. One is that preferences are complete. And that is, if you ask someone, do you prefer x to y, or what, uh, someone will be able to tell you, I prefer x to y, or I prefer y to x, or I'm indifferent. They won't say, I don't know what my preferences are. So preferences are complete, and that they're transitive. If you prefer x to y and y to z, then you prefer x uh, x to z, and indifference is transitive, and it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's basically uh, transitivity. And in terms of substantive axioms uh, concerning preference in most of economics, that's really it in terms of the substantive axioms concerning preference themselves. However, there's a couple of other formal conditions, well, there's a couple of other conditions that are worth mentioning. Uh, there's a context independence uh, condition. This isn't a formal axiom on preferences, but the, the basic idea is if I prefer x to y, my preference doesn't change when somebody offers me z as, uh, as well. So if I prefer x to y in just the binary choice, then if the set gets larger, that preference isn't going to reverse. If, uh, so th- that uh, our preferences are stable, they aren't dependent uh, uh, on the context. And then also, crucially, there has to be some way of relating preference to choice. And uh, essentially the idea is that our choices are going to track our preferences. So that um, if you for the, for the moment just forget about indifference, I'm going to choose x over y if and only if I prefer uh, x to y, just sort of putting it in a, uh, uh, in a very uh, relaxed way. Uh, as we'll see when I talk about um, revealed preference theory, choice determination has to be defined in a, uh, in a, uh, in a fairly definite way, uh, and I'll talk about it more. Then there's a whole bunch of other conditions. If we want to go beyond ordinal utility theory to expected utility theory, we have a bunch of other axioms. But even with respect to ordinal utility theory, in order to prove that um, utility functions, utility is just another way of talking about preferences, in order to prove that they have, uh, that, uh, you know, that these functions exist and have certain properties, we need to assume formal conditions on preferences such as continuity, but these I don't think are actually philosophically uh, very interesting and I'm, uh, I'm not going to talk about them. Now if you just look at the axioms, what do the axioms tell us uh, 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 about preferences? Well, they tell us several very important things. First of all, crucially and obviously preferences are uh, comparative. If you say something uh, like, you know, I prefer to eat my dinner early. Uh, you're implicitly comparing it with eating your dinner later or whatever. That preferences are always comparative and that marks a really big distinction between preference language and desire language. To say that I want something, I could want the opposite thing too. To say that I prefer something is to say that I prefer it to something else. So preferences are comparative. Uh, This should go without saying, but actually if one looks at some of the psychological literature, what psychologists say about preferences, they often treat them as not comparative. But the notion of preference as it shows up in everyday language, and certainly as it shows up in in economics, it's crucial that it's a comparative notion. Uh, Secondly, preferences aren't just judgments. 
because there's supposed to be a direct connection, I haven't really told you precisely what choice determination is, but since it's the case that preferences are supposed to determine choices, pretty, beliefs may enter too, but it's not as if we need something else to motivate us in addition to preferences. Uh, preferences are all by themselves choice determining, so they don't have exactly the same status as a judgment because they have uh, a motivational oomph, as you were. Um, and third, uh, that preferences are total rankings. And the reason they're t they have to be total rankings is that they determine choices. If they were rankings with respect to one particular aspect, then there might be something else that competes with preference. But the way preference is used by, uh, by economists, once we know somebody's preferences and their beliefs and the physical constraints, well, we, we know what they're, uh, they're going to choose. So it's not as if there's anything that enters into the determination of choice except via belief and via preference. And what that means is that the ranking that one has within preference has to be a total ranking, has to be a ranking in terms of everything that's at least going to be relevant to choice. So we've learned a bit about preferences simply from looking at the formal conditions. But note that the formal conditions don't imply that preferences are matters of, uh, uh, mere matters of taste or that rational criticism is impossible. They have no implication like that at all. Uh, they don't imply any connection between preference and self-interest, and they don't imply that preferences can be defined uh, in terms of choices. On the contrary, uh, preferences <laughs> are supposed to have a certain kind of causal role with respect to choices. They're supposed to be responsible for choices. So the three mistakes that I'm criticizing really aren't implicit, at least in the axioms that we've looked at. So. What about whether preferences are uh, subject to uh, uh, rational criticism? Well, if one takes seriously the notion that people have, and clearly that one, one has to take this as an idealization, but if you take seriously the notion that the way choice is going to be explained is by supposing that people have a total ranking of all the alternatives that they might realistically face and have to choose among, at least among those, uh, that they have a total ranking of those things, which is complete, so that you know, everything can be ranked, it's transitive, and moreover, it's completely independent of context. It doesn't wind up shifting around from one context to another. That's cognitively incredibly demanding, incredibly demanding. In fact, way, way more demanding than I think any human being can, can, can live up to. It may be that there are some people out there with complete and transitive preferences. I'm not one of them, and probably very few of you are. Just you know, give me enough pairwise choices. You prefer this to this, this to this. At a certain point, I'm going to follow up and, and, uh, and be inconsistent. But if you imagine that this, that this is a reasonable idealization, and in some contexts I think it is an entirely reasonable idealization, how is it that anyone could sort of come close? Well, the only way that anyone could come close is uh, either by having the most miraculous gut in the universe that somehow or other just sort of feels everything in a nice, consistent way, or by a lot of thought. I mean, to actually construct a complete and transitive uh, preference ranking, as I said before, is a cognitively demanding task. And 
it's actually, uh, this isn't any kind of disproof or anything, but it's extremely unlikely that preferences would be sort of mere matters of whim or taste or whatever and be able to satisfy the axioms of completeness and transitivity and to be context uh, independent. So that's one reason to, to doubt that preferences are sort of these sort of just givens that aren't subject to criticism. Secondly, very, very few of our preferences are independent of our beliefs. I mean, just take preferences among different uh, flavors of ice cream. Chocolate ice cream, coffee ice cream. Uh, personally, I like chocolate a lot better than coffee. Other people, uh, uh, other people disagree with me. You might say, look, that's something It's just sort of ju just a matter of taste. Well, you know, you read in the newspaper, let's say, that uh, uh, chocolate ice cream is carcinogenic, or you read in the newspaper that chocolate, in fact, uh, calms the nerves and make you live longer. That's going to change your preferences. It's going to change your preferences even among something like you know which uh, you know uh, which flavor ice cream cone you you get at the uh, at the corner store. Uh, it may be that there are some preferences which are independent of belief, but there are very very few. And since preferences are uh, dependent on beliefs, and since it's uh, so that, um, and of course beliefs can be true or false and clearly are, are subject to uh, criticism, preferences are also subject to criticism. Preferences that are based on false beliefs may in a very straightforward way simply be mistaken. Somebody may say, you know, I prefer this to this, and I say, well look, you know, I give, it, I, I give them a certain amount of information, they go, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, no. So, I mean, if you think about preferences, uh, and I mean, this, this isn't rocket science, in lots of ways this is really simple stuff, um, but nevertheless it needs to be said because it's so easy to fall into the view that preferences are just sort of uh, gut feelings. Um, yes? Sure. Preferences usually depend on beliefs, but what orthodox economists would say, I guess, is that it's the preferences on the fully specified worlds which are not subject to criticism. I disagree with that, but this is what, what they would say, and then, by definition, it wouldn't depend on beliefs. Well, it's a great question. I might want to postpone it because it, it raises really complicated things, but if it's preferences over fully specified worlds, then what you're doing is you're <laughs> building the beliefs into the preferences. So that if you have, so that oh, what happens if somebody discovers that a belief was mistaken, rather than their preference changing, they discovered uh, they discovered that they weren't that the object of preference wasn't what they uh, what they thought it was. So you aren't really escaping the possibility of, of criticism. It's just that you're sort of supposing that you can. Uh, there's a variety of ways of making the dependence on beliefs go away. You can suppose that everybody's beliefs are perfectly true. Then, then you make the dependence of beliefs apparently disappear. But let me postpone that because uh, I can come back to it uh, later. Now, uh, uh, transitivity imposes various kinds of consistency constraints uh, on your preferences. If you prefer x to y and y to z, then you've got to prefer uh, x to z. 
And that, of course, creates the possibility of some criticism. But consistency constraints go beyond that, not within standard economics, but if one thinks about preferences, because it's often the case that in addition to having preferences over objects of choice, we, have, uh, we place values on the attributes uh, of things. So one of the things that uh, most people place uh, a value on when they're choosing among foods is nutritiousness. Another thing they place uh, a value on is uh, 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 that, uh, how good it tastes. Another thing they, they may place a value on is whether it's fattening or not. And, there's, and if it's the case that you, you say, look, what I'm really concerned about is really healthy food that isn't fattening, and what I really love is creme brulee, you've got an inconsistency there. Not a logical inconsistency, but you've got a, a conflict within your values. And if one starts thinking about it, this, this uh, extends a good deal uh, beyond uh, what one thinks of as the mere consistency among preferences as economists would understand it. And clearly there's lots of room for rational criticism. Okay, now, um, I'm now going to turn to the other two uh, mistakes about preferences, and in doing that I'm going to start with a, uh, a quote from uh, uh, Amartya Sen. Uh, this is from a 1973 paper, I don't remember the title off the top of my head, but it's, was it consistency in something or other, but uh, it's a, a very influential paper and Sen's a good person to quote because he's obviously uh, a first-rate economist, he's a Nobel laureate in economics, and someone who's philosophically very sophisticated. So this, this is what Sen wrote. Certainly there's no remarkable difficulty in simply defining preference as the underlying relation in terms of which individual choices can be explained. In this mathematical operation, preference will simply be the binary representation of individual choice. I should pause a second just to point out that these two sentences are actually inconsistent with one another. If it's the, simply the binary representation, then it's not the underlying relation in terms of which choices can be uh, explained. But uh, be that as it may, I'll get back to reveal preference theory later. The difficulty arises in interpreting preference thus defined as preference in the usual sense with the property that if a person prefers x to y, then he must regard himself to be better off with x than with y. And the, uh, the, the italics are mine, not sense. Uh, uh, slightly later in the same article, he goes on to say, preference can be defined so as to prefer, preserve its <laughs> correspondence with choice or defined so as to keep it in line with welfare as seen by the person in question. So Sen is saying that there's at least two definitions of preference. One of them is, I prefer x to y if and only if I believe that x is better for me than y. The other definition is, I prefer x to y if and only if I choose x when I have a choice between uh, x and y. And I ask the question, are these both acceptable definitions of preference? Uh, you probably can guess that I don't think so. So let's look at the relationship between preferences and expected benefits. This is the first of the two definitions that Sen uh, offers us. And if one thinks about it, uh, even if you believe 
that people are generally, or perhaps even always, self-interested. I don't think you want to define preference as um, in terms of uh, one's uh, ex uh, expected benefit. And I give some very fairly obvious examples. Take altruism. Uh, I mean, you may, might believe that there is none, but I don't think you many people think that altruism is logically impossible. And if you thought that you could define preference in terms of expected benefit, then someone who says, I prefer X to Y because it's better for somebody else, but, but, what's be but what I think is better for me is Y over X, that person would, just be, in would be just contradicting themselves if we defined um, preference in terms of expected benefit. And so, I mean, I, th I think it's obvious that sometimes people are altruistic. I think it's even more obvious that sometimes people are malevolent, that they act in a way that they don't expect to be beneficial to themselves because they want to hurt somebody else, and that people sometimes act um, simply out of habit. And certainly it's the case that um, people might act when they have no belief about what is better for him. One activity that I'm paid to carry out is grading student papers. And as I'm sitting grading a student paper, I'm making lots of choices. I'm deciding whether to uh, make, a, make a mark on the paper because a particular paper sentence isn't all that grammatical, whether to point out uh, an error, how to express it. I'm making loads and loads and loads of choices. Do I have any idea about whether those choices are better for me or not? I mean, maybe when you're grading papers you think about, I mean, I have no idea what's going to be beneficial for me in terms of uh, making those. And the notion that every choice I'm making, which of course is going to be governed by preference, is going to be governed by my thought of my own expected benefit, is if you take it really seriously, I think a pretty ridiculous, uh, 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 ridiculous idea. Uh, and indeed, I point out that given the connection between preference and choice, this would, this would mean that uh, self-interested choice is actually logically necessary, but no, no reason to go into that. Okay, so where are we so far? I've criticized the view that preferences are sort of unreflected, simply gut feelings, which is um, well, certainly doesn't match the pref uh, preferences as they're used either in everyday language and it really doesn't match the way they're used in, in economics if we suppose that preferences could actually uh, uh, satisfy the axioms and if we think about the dependence of preference uh, on belief. I've criticized the view that preferences are simply um, uh, can be defined in terms of uh, expected self-interested benefit. And so now I'm on to the uh, third, uh, what I claim is mistake, and that's the view that we can actually define preference in terms of choice. And when economists talk about this, and some economists really love revealed preference theory, uh, I'm not a sociologist of economics, so I, I really can't say for sure, but my guess is the vast majority of economists really don't think about re reveal preference theory at all and have no particular interest in it. So it's not as if this is a view that every economist would uh, sign on to by any means, but certainly many sign on to them. 
Uh, I'm sorry, for example, that uh, Ken, Ken Binmore isn't around, who's, uh, he's obviously been here at the LSE quite a lot, and he's someone I've wrangled with a lot about revealed preference theory, and he's a, 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 a true believer. So uh, one of the things that complicates talking about revealed preference theory is that there's at least three versions of it, which I've called actual revealed preference theory, hypothetical revealed preference theory, and conditional revealed preference theory. Act, and these are not precise definitions. They're useful for the purposes of, of lecture. If you wanted to find them precisely, it would, you'd have to do it a little bit more in a little bit more sophisticated way than this. But actual revealed preference theory is the view that an agent A prefers X to Y if and only if the agent never chooses Y from any set, including the set consisting simply of uh, X and Y, uh, uh, that in, uh, includes X. And we're assuming that the agent always chooses something or other. So this entails that if the agent has a choice simply between X and Y, the agent will indeed uh, uh, choose X. Then there's what I call hypothetical reveal preference theory, which says that the, an agent prefers X to Y if and only if the agent would never choose Y if the agent faced any set of alternatives including X. And finally, there's what I call conditional X, um, reveal preference theory. Uh, an agent prefers X to Y if the agent would never choose Y if the agent believed there was an option of choosing X instead. So let me talk about these separately. Actual revealed preference theory, this is the theory that was formulated by Paul Samuelson. Uh, Ian Little was very uh, uh, influential on, on this. Hudecker, uh, uh, in his work in the early 1950s, was talking about this version of revealed preference theory. And sometimes it's, I think in, it's often the version that's still espoused. And it has a very um, has a number of motivations, but one of its main motivations is a philosophical motivation. Uh, 1930s is uh, era when the logical positivists were quite influential. Samuelson's very explicit that he uh, that he's motivated by empiricist concerns. And the view is that look, we're talking about preferences. We can't see those things. They're in the head. They're theoretical. We want to be really scientists. We want to talk about stuff that we can observe. And we can observe behavior, we can observe choices, and if we can actually define preferences in terms of choices, if we can say, look, to say somebody prefers something is just to talk about what, uh, what they choose, then uh, we've made, uh, econo we can defend economics as being much more scientific. So it, there's this strong empiricist motivation. Now this motivation, uh, means that preferences have to be limited to the immediate objects of choice. If we're going to define preferences in terms of people's actual choices, then people, the only time we're going to, the only preferences people can have is preferences among things that they're choosing among. So uh, if somebody asks me, uh, who would you prefer to be president, Obama or McCain, if you're a revealed preference theory, there can't be a preference there because I don't get to choose. I get to choose who to vote for. I get, don't get to choose uh, who's going to be uh, president. That's not something that preferences can actually, um, uh, it's not going to be within the domain over which preferences are defined. Preferences are defined 
only among the immediate objects of choice. And oh, that's very limiting. I'm going to point out how limiting it is in a moment. But moreover, it's simply false to maintain that if an agent A prefers X to Y, then the agent never chooses Y from any set, including X, Y, that includes X, because uh, the problem with uh, actual real preference theories, it leaves out belief. Somebody can give me a choice between X and Y. It can be the case that I prefer X to Y, and I choose Y. How? I don't know X was there. I have to believe that, I, that, the, that the set among which I'm choosing includes X. If I don't believe it, if I, I might think <laughs> I have no choice. Y is the only thing I can choose. Belief is absolutely unavoidable, even if we're talking about choices among um, the immediate, uh, uh, even if we're talking about preferences among uh, the immediate objects of, uh, of choice. That preference is related to choice only via belief. Now, there's a lot of ways to make that invisible if you suppose that everybody has perfect knowledge, that everybody's beliefs are true and complete, then you don't need to talk explicitly about belief, but that doesn't really mean that belief doesn't matter, it just means that you've uh, built in you know, uh, uh, correct beliefs so you don't have to worry about belief anymore. Now, an economist might say, well look, uh, clearly when we talk about preferences in everyday life, we, we're thinking about things that are responsible for choices. But why can't we, in doing economics, simply stipulate that w what we economists are going to mean by preferences are actual revealed preferences, are things that can be defined in terms of choices? Well, if you do, let me, I just want to point out that, that you can't actually do that and do. Uh, well, for example, very simple game theory. So on this slide, I've portrayed an extremely simple game. We've got two players, Jack and Jill. Player one gets to make one of two choices. He can play up or down. And then uh, if he plays up, game's over. If he plays down, Jill can choose left or right. The numbers here are supposed to express the preferences that Jack and Jill have. and uh, higher numbers mean uh, a more preferred option. The first number is supposed to express Jack's preferences, the second number Jill's preferences. So what this says is that the best option, the, the option that Jack prefers the most is if he plays down and Jill plays left. left. The option he prefers the least is if he plays down and uh, Jill plays right. The option Jill likes the best is for Jack to play down and for her to play right. The uh, Jack simply playing up is the second best option for both of them. Now, where these? How could we possibly have these numbers if we've got re actual revealed preferences? Jack never has a choice between up left uh, up and down left. Jill never has a choice between uh, up and down left or between up and down right. Jill has a choice between left and right if Jack plays down. And so we can make sense of Jill preferring, we can make sense of Jill preferring uh, uh, down right to down left. But we've got a preference here between 
uh, up and down left or, uh, uh, or down right. That's not something that either, either player ever has, has a choice over. And so if we're to define a game and put preferences for both individuals on each of the terminal nodes, we can't possibly limit preferences to the immediate objects of choice. Uh, I mean, if you want to make this a, a little bit more um, uh, salient and uh, easy to follow, you can think of this as uh, Jack, uh, well, think of this as Darcy and uh, 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 Elizabeth and Pride and Press, uh, uh, Prejudice. Darcy is considering whether to uh, propose or not. What he, most what he most wants is to propose and to be accepted by uh, Elizabeth. Uh, the worst is to propose and be rejected. I mean, that's that really is miserable. And second best is uh, is uh, not to uh, not to propose uh, not to propose at all. Uh, if you're going to do game theory, you have to have preferences like that. Those preferences aren't defined over the immediate objects of choice. So you couldn't possibly be a real preference theorist and do even this sort of simple game theory. Um, so let's move on to hypothetical revealed preference theory. Uh, yeah, uh, Alex. Just a question. Can't you simply say, um, can't there be other contexts in which the person has chosen, say Jack, has chosen between whatever it is that's being given two there and whatever it is that's being given three there, and he had, in, the, in those other contexts, he chose uh, whatever the outcome is associated with left down <coughs> to the outcome associated with just up. And if you then, of course, you have to make a further assumption that the outcomes are really the same. Right, and that's, that's of so course, very problematic yeah. uh, within game theory. But uh, well, let's, let's take this as, you know, Darcy doesn't propose. Let's take this as Darcy proposes and is, is accepted. What other context could there possibly be in which Darcy has a choice between those two alternatives? And remember, this is, this is actual real preference theory, so we're not thinking about, well, could we think of some hypothetical case? He's supposed to actually have made this choice someplace. Yeah, no. There isn't such a thing. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think it's... Well, the gambles. <coughs> the gambles with those as the outcomes and uh, his preferences between gambles and certain alternatives may, may allow you to infer those numbers. Um, well... He says to him, there's a 50% chance I'll accept you if you propose today. And uh, he says, no, it's not worth it to me. Right, well... Then, uh, uh, then he's made a, he's made an actual choice. Right, he, 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 can, he can make a choice between those gambles, but the question is, remember, I mean, if we're doing expected utility, then we've got the gambles, we've also got utilities attached to the prizes, mm -hmm. and the prizes aren't things that he has choices in mind. And so, if we're going to have utilities over the gambles, we've got to have them defined over the over the prizes, or the the outcomes. And we can't have them defined over the outcomes if we're actual real preference theorists. So, um, well, you, you, you can see if you can pin me some other way in the, uh, in the discussion. Okay, hypothetical reveal preference theory. This has been Moore's view, and uh, it's a view that's defended by some other people. It's not as widely 
espoused as actual revealed preference theory, although in fact, as is obvious, nobody practices any of these because uh, they couldn't possibly. So hypothetical revealed preference theory says uh, X is preferred to Y by A uh, if X would never choose Y if, uh, if, sorry, if A never would choose Y if A were faced with an, a set of alternatives including X. Now the first thing to note about this is if you're an empiricist and you're worried about preference because we can't observe preference, why in the world would you like hypothetical choice? It, it's no easier to observe uh, what someone would choose in a circumstance that they're not facing than to observe what, what they prefer. Uh, indeed, I, you know, presumably the way we find out what somebody would choose is by asking them uh, which would you choose, which is presumably a whole lot like asking them which do you, uh, uh, which do you prefer. Asking them which would you choose may help to focus their thought or something like that, but it's certainly uh, no more empirically uh, kosher or uh, observable than what their preferences are. And obviously enough, hypothetical choice isn't choice at all. Uh, um, we're, we're basically just asking about preferences in, uh, in another way. Furthermore, uh, hypothetical choice limits preferences to possible objects of choice. It doesn't limit preferences to actual objects of choice. But if we go back to our graph here, is there a possible object of choice where uh, Darcy gets to choose between making his proposal and his proposal being accepted? I mean, it's not as if... Um, I mean, presumably he wants, uh, not Jill, he wants uh, Elizabeth to make the choice. And uh, so it's not, clear, uh, it's not clear that we can talk about hypothetical choice here. Uh, uh, maybe we can, but uh, it, seems to be, uh, it seems like a serious uh, limit. And it's also although it's not obvious, it's subject to the same uh, problem that it simply isn't true. It appears to be true because when we ask the counterfactual, it sounds like the belief will, will automatically be built in, but that's actually a, an illusion. I can go into it in discussion. It's a little bit naughty and I'm running a little slowly, yeah. But, uh, isn't that hypothetical interpretation also that to remove another problem with the actual account? Because the actual account deals with time and uh, you have to look 10 years behind sometimes to find out your actual choice. And in that meantime, your preference may have changed. Right. Whereas here you can say, if you, what would you now do if you were now faced with such and such? Right. So it, it, definitely has, uh, it, it definitely has those advantages. But <coughs> it's, uh, it doesn't have any advantage from uh, uh, an empiricist perspective. No. It's also not true that uh, a person prefers X to Y if they never would choose Y if they were faced with a set of alternatives uh, uh, in, uh, including X for, th for the same reason that they might simply not know what set of alternatives they're facing. They might have, they might 
uh, you know, they might not know that X is in the set of alternatives uh, that they're facing. And so, uh, once again, we have uh, a claim which is false. Moreover, it really isn't well motivated, unlike the, uh, the claim before. Um, let me skip that. Okay, conditional reveal preference theory. I mention this not because, as far as I know, anybody has ever formulated this apart from me in terms of criticizing it, but because when economists talk about reveal preference theory, sometimes they say, well, once we stipulate the beliefs, preferences are revealed. That is, once we stipulate the beliefs, we can infer the preferences from the choices, for which I have no objection whatsoever. The crucial thing is, if you take the more reasonable view, to say that x prefers uh, a prefers x to y, if a would never choose y, if a believed there was an option of choosing x instead, uh, that's got limitations to it. But it's really no longer a view that re in any way reduces preference to choice. It's a view that takes preference as um, determining choice jointly with, uh, with belief. It's really a view that takes preference to be a uh, subjective state. Uh, I, don't think it's, I don't think this is a, a good way of formulating uh, the way preferences and choices are related to one another, but um, insofar as you've shifted to this view, you've really given up what, uh, the whole point of what was reveal preference theory, all you point, all that's left is the view that in circumstances where we know people's beliefs, we can make inferences about their preferences from their choices, which is clearly true, um, but which uh, certainly doesn't give us any uh, distinctive view of what preferences are. Okay, so what are preferences? I've been criticizing uh, mistaken claims about preferences. Well, in everyday life, the notion of preference is um, ambiguous. I think the most important notion of preference is what I call overall subjective comparative evaluation. And what I mean by overall subjective comparative evaluation is in everyday life, when we say that somebody prefers one thing to another, we mean that they've considered that with respect to almost all relevant considerations, they've evaluated one thing more highly than another. And the almost is there because we're, we're not very systematic. So consider an example like the following. Um, I might say, uh, uh, last weekend I went and had uh, dinner with my great aunt uh, because uh, I hadn't seen her in a long time, and I'd promised my mother I'd have dinner with my great aunt. But what I really preferred to do was go out and, and uh, go to a movie with uh, some friends. So when we talk that way, what we're doing is we're saying, well, we have preferences that point one way, and we've got other considerations, often considerations of duty or promises or whatever that conflict. And so we don't take preferences as being everything that uh, explains choice in everyday language. We take it as being most of the stuff that is relevant to choice, but we allow certain things to compete with it. But we don't this, do this in any terribly systematic way. We could say, um, 
All things considered, I preferred to have uh, uh, lunch with my aunt because I uh, because I uh, I promised uh, promised my mother. We can do it one way or the other, uh, but in everyday language, even though we take preferences as capturing most of the considerations that uh, determine our choices as sort of being an overall evaluation, uh, we don't take it as being a, a total of, uh, uh, evaluation. We allow some factors to compete with preferences in terms of determining our choices. In economics, in contrast, what economists have done is, is they've sort of cleaned this up. They've said what we're going to do is we're going to take every factor that influences choice either to be just a matter of physical constraint you can't choose there's certain things you can't choose it's just physically impossible uh, so there's those things are going to influence choices beliefs are going to influence choices and indeed physical constraints are usually going to influence choices via beliefs because we're going to recognize things that are impossible so we're not going to try them and then we have preferences and there's nothing that has motivational force that influences our uh, behavior except via preference. So considerations of duty, considerations of um, all sorts of moral considerations, which in everyday language we'll often treat as competing with preferences, economists are going to take as um, factors that are incorporated within preferences that are factors that uh, uh, determine preferences. So uh, I think that the notion of preference that economists mostly do adopt, this isn't, this isn't meant to be uh, re revisionist, I think this is the notion that most economists in fact rely on, is the notion of a total subjective comparative evaluation. I think it's a perfectly legitimate notion. It has some very important implications in terms of explanatory strategy. It's perfectly legitimate, perfectly uh, sensible, and it's not in any way committed to reveal preference theory, to self-interest is the only thing that uh, determines preference, or to preference as being something which is uh, thoughtless and not, uh, not subject to uh, criticism. Uh, how am I doing with respect to time? I'll, I'll I'll be done quickly. Okay, who makes these preferences? Uh, who makes these uh, mistakes? Uh, well, self-hate as a self-hater, like lots of philosophers, philosophers tend to uh, tend to make these mistakes. Um, economists make these mistakes, commenting on uh, uh, on their discipline. Uh, political scientists certainly sometimes make these mistakes. These mistakes do sometimes show up in practice, and they're significant in practice. So in um, uh, the use of cost-benefit analysis with respect to uh, 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 environmental factors, uh, if, well, actually, I'm just going to skip that because I, I've run on too long. If you want to talk about it in uh, discussion, uh, I'll talk about it. Let me talk about uh, just how this has led to mistakes concerning health measurement, which is something I've been quite interested in. Um, uh, 
Well, here, many of you probably heard of the uh, National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, which determines uh, whether new drugs and therapies will be uh, uh, approved for use within the um, uh, National Health Service. And these decisions are based on cost-effectiveness uh, considerations. And the uh, effectiveness measure is done in terms of uh, what uh, the effective me measure is done in terms of what kind of uh, quality-adjusted life years, how many quality-adjusted life years do we get for each pound of uh, expenditure, or how many pounds do we have to spend for a, a given quality-adjusted life year. So the idea is that we're sort of taking into account the extension of life and the quality of life, and w where do we get these quality numbers from? Well, basically it's done by surveying people. The questions are a little bit more complicated than, uh, uh, well, here's the kind of question someone might be asked. Uh, suppose you're going to live for the next uh, 20 years uh, being uh, blind, and we gave you a, a uh, and there's a surgery that you could have which would cure you, and then you'd live for 20 years in, uh, sighted, so you'd so uh, solve the blindness, but the surgery might kill you. So with a certain probability, you're going to, your eyesight will be clear, uh, cured, you'll live for the same 20 years, with a certain probability, with one minus that, that probability, you'll die immediately. For what probability would you be indifferent between the two of those? Well, if you think about it, that's not an easy question to answer, and it's also not one that most of you have probably spent a lot of time thinking about already. Uh, it's a new question, and it's a rather difficult question, and uh, you might say, well, being blind would definitely uh, interfere with a lot of things, but I wouldn't want to sacrifice any of my lifespan. Uh, I wouldn't want to take a gamble like this for any probability. On the other hand, maybe I'd want... And if you think about it, you'd really want to think hard. You'd really want to learn what it would be like. How would, could I continue to do my job? What would my relationship be to my family, to my friends? What kinds of recreations would I, uh, would I enjoy? How adaptable am I? How, to what extent could I change my... This is all really complicated stuff. And if you think of preferences, and this is done in terms of asking people's preferences between these things. If you think of a preference as something where it's just a matter of sort of how you feel, it's not cognitive or whatever, you'll go out and do surveys like this and you give people 30 seconds to answer, which is what they do, and then they, you know, and then those are the numbers that are determining, you know, whether you're getting certain health services or not here in, here in the UK. Um, if, on the other hand, you recognize that preferences are really intellectually very demanding to formulate and require lots of information, then you don't try to, uh, uh, you don't, uh, you don't try to measure health this way. Exactly how you can do it is a really complicated question, but I think this is an instance of where the view that if we're talking about preference, it's really not all that cognitively demanding actually winds up doing something which is mistaken and harmful. Uh, well, since I'm out of time, I'll just go right to the conclusion. Conclusion, in my view, preferences in economics are total subjective comparative evaluations. They're not expressions of taste. 
expectations of benefit to oneself, nor definable by choices. This view, I think, fits most of economic practice pretty well. And I think it's uh, a defensible and indeed fruitful view. And I think getting clear about preferences can actually improve economic practice in certain ways. And I can go on about that in discussion if there's time. So I'll stop there. Good. We got half hour for questions. Uh, you want to fill your own questions? Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm, uh, my background is in economics, but I now write on philosophy. Uh -huh. um, uh, I guess when you describe motivation, talking about real questions, right. my gut feeling is that most economists actually believe if they believe in anything in your third model, conditional preference, not right. actual. Right. And, I, that's and, and fine. in fact, if you build it in with lotteries, you might you might sort of get that out because one's choosing between lotter abstract lotteries in the first place in, you know, in, in the formal representation of choice under risk. But my thinking was about <coughs> motivation for all those models, uh -huh. right, um, which is that it seems to me part of the motivation is a kind of split that is achieved between fact and value. And part of what I thought you were doing was in a way a kind of uh, rerun of the critique of the split between fact and value. So that, um, in a way, the appeal of hypothetical preferences as sort of determining values is that you're generating values out of one very broad brush ethical assumption that you should satisfy people's preferences and a factual empirical question about what people's preferences are. And yes, it hangs on a counterfactual. That may not have bothered people too much in the 1930s because logical positivism made the whole of the physical world kind of a counterfactual. Uh, counterfactuals about possible sense data. So in a way, counterfactuals about possible choices uh, match that quite nicely. I think the other kind of um, motivation um, is that it's quite a nice representation. Or it's, it, it seems like a nice representation of a certain kind of liberalism that you, uh, you um, build your welfare economics on accepting consumer sovereignty. And I think that intuition is still very powerful among economists. Um, I guess there, there were a couple of um, there were a couple of other assumptions built into that model that you didn't talk about that might be even more important. One of which is the idea that those hypothetical questions actually have an answer at all. Mm -hmm. In other words, that the well-informed agent, but there is some belief state which would constitute um, a state of being well informed under which choices would be determinate, rather than our actually being coalitions of different kind of systems within ourselves and there being the possibility of bargaining or conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is the extent to which um, preferences, in a sense, reflect culture. And that brings me to the other motivation that I suspect hangs behind this model, which is that it suits a certain intellectual division of labour. Economists can sort of get on with satisfying preferences and not and, and then say, well, whatever is really determining those preferences culturally and so on is someone else's business. And economists get quite uneasy about how they're going to make welfare comparisons once they begin factoring in cultural change. Okay, uh, wow, there's uh, tons of great stuff. Let me go in, uh, in uh, re reverse order. Uh, uh, 
In the book, I actually discuss uh, six mistakes about preferences rather than three, and one of those is the view that uh, uh, economists have nothing to say about preference formation, which is actually, I think, at least psychologically quite closely connected to the view that preferences are just express matters of taste and aren't subject to intellectual um, exploration. I mean, if you think about it, uh, if economists suppose that preferences over the immediate objects of choice were already given in every case, the question, you know, why did somebody choose this or choose that, would have always have one answer, they preferred it. There'd be nothing, there, there'd be no content. That, in fact, if you look at game theory, for example, game theory is an account of preference formation. It's, I mean, that's not the way economists think about it, but in fact, in order to have a game, we need to define preferences over the terminal nodes. But if we already know the preferences over the strategies, we have nothing to do. And so we're deriving what strategies are chosen, but and it's another way of putting it, what, preference, uh, what the preferences over the strategies are uh, from the preferences over the terminal nodes. And in fact, um, that method of uh, deriving preferences, of considering where preferences come from and how they possibly could be modified can, can be extended. So one of the things that I, I try to argue for in the book is that although what you say is absolutely right and the economists would like to say, oh we've got nothing to say about preference formation. In fact they do have things to say about preference formation which are valuable and they have more things that, uh, that could be said than the ones that they're saying. Um, that hypothetical questions always have an answer. That's connected to what I was talking about in terms of, uh, of context independence and completeness, the notion that somehow other people are already walking around. And we've got enormously uh, extensive and, in my view, compelling experimental evidence that except for choices that people make repeatedly, in general people don't have preferences that they're walking around with and they're making them up on the fly and indeed if we're good experimenters we can set up cunning places to have them make them up on the fly and, and get it all screwed up. Um, now with respect to um, the um, concern with uh, uh, consumer sovereignty, uh, liberalism having a very individualistic welfare economics, I think we can do all that with the notion of preferences that I have. Uh, I didn't talk about welfare economics and I've got some views about ways that it, it, uh, that it needs certain kinds of uh, limitations to it, but I don't think that there's really an issue there about how we conceive of preferences. And in terms of the idea of that if we accept some kind of view of a real tight connection between preference and choice and then we simply look at choice to examine preferences, that that way we don't have to sort of think about values. Uh, I think there's a lot in, in that because This, this is something that became very clear to me when I was thinking about the health measurement stuff. Um, health economists are often saying, well, we haven't the foggiest idea how to place values on different health states, so let's ask people who've never thought about it and who know much less about it than we do what, what they prefer. 
and that the preference will do it for it. But the preference, of course, is the result of uh, evaluating things. The values are fundamental. The preference is derived from it. They're the outcome of a process of evaluation. They aren't the they aren't the input into other preferences. Maybe the input, but the preferences over the health states themselves uh, aren't the input. And so. Um, this is tied up with the view that we really need to think of preferences as really being uh, uh, cognitive and that although we can certainly learn about preferences from looking at people's choices, it's not as if these are things that are just uh, incidental to, to behavior which is somehow other inexplicable. Uh, yeah, Jason? Yeah, I just wanted to ask a question about um, the implications of your conclusion. I, I, I think what you've got up there with you as a descriptive claim is, is absolutely right. What I'm terribly worried about is that if we interpret that as a regulative principle for going to mm -hmm. what we ought to do mm -hmm. economics and experimental economics, I don't see where we get a significant improvement on prior conceptions because it seems like many of the issues that you raised mm -hmm. come back exactly here when we try to operationalize this and try to say, well, look, how am I supposed? I, I want to know what a person's total subjective comparative evaluation mm -hmm. is. Now, given all of the dependency on belief, all of the dependency mm -hmm. on experience, on people's empath empathetic abilities to project, mm -hmm. on people's ability to truly recreate the choice problem you're here. I mean, mm -hmm. how would you even propose that we actually try to use this conclusion to say the, the, the attempt to measure quality-adjusted life here should be done in this way? Um, it's a, it's a, that's also a, 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 a really good question. Um, and it's one that's um, I'm uh, pausing because I'm trying to figure out how I can answer it re relatively briefly. Um, let's leave any issues about welfare out of it and look at this in terms of just in terms of positive economics. I see this notion of preference as wedded to a particular structure of explanation and uh, a, 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 and prediction. So what we're going to do is, depending on the context, we may simply take preferences as already given, they're already there, they got formed somehow or other, and we've got preferences and beliefs and constraints and we ex uh, explain behavior. In other cases, and this is going to show up in a lot of experimental cases, well, uh, we can't just take the, the preferences uh, for granted. We've got to open the black box and figure out how the preferences derive from this ragtag, huge variety of um, uh, uh, motivational factors, uh, many of which psychologists have have, uh, uh, have talked uh, have talked about. But what we're going to do is we're going to regiment the way this is treated, and we're going to say, well, all this stuff somehow or other has to give us preferences, and then our model is preferences plus beliefs gives us the the behavior. So it gives us a particular structure of carrying out our activities of uh, explaining and, and predicting behavior. It doesn't tell us, sort of having done that, doesn't tell us uh, what's the best theory of preference formation and modification. I, I do have some things to say about that, but there's nothing in this 
account of preference itself that tells you anything like that. What this says is uh, if you're going to uh, do positive economics this way, or if you, or explain, you know, and obviously we can use the same strategies outside of economics uh, itself. Uh, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take all the motivational factors and we're going to, uh, out of those, construct preferences at least with respect to the particular objects of um, choice uh, here, and we're uh, and uh, so that. There's going to be a particular pattern or structure, so but that's that's all it does by itself. It doesn't an, it doesn't answer. I think we, I think your questions are more substantive, and this account of preference by itself doesn't doesn't really answer those substantive questions. Yeah. Just a brief follow up on this question. I mean, what exactly economists, what economists would have to say regarding issues such as preference formation, and more specifically, I mean. Why should it be economists as opposed to psychologists or cognitive scientists or neuroscientists to take a position on this issue? Because the, the impression might remain that you are actually advocating a kind of an illegitimate or at least an inconvenient overextension of the domain of economics in areas that the economists actually lack the tool to tackle. Um, this isn't meant to be a defense of any kind of uh, 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 economic uh, imperialism. Uh, what I'd like to see is, with a better understanding of, uh, with a clear notion of what preferences are, a better understanding of the structure of explanation and prediction that uh, re relies on preference, and a recognition that questions about preference formation and modification are already there, that that creates the basis whereby there can be uh, a much better conversation between economists and uh, 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 psychologists, soci sociologists, social psychologists. Um, and it, it's not as though I think there won't be any remaining division of labor. There will be. But there are uh, some really crucial issues that uh, arise within economics which just aren't being addressed by anybody partly because of this uh, sense that economists have nothing to say about preference formation. I mean if you think about game theory uh, you, can't, you don't have a game, you can't do game theory until you, uh, in, until you know what the preferences are. If it's a game of incomplete information you, but you still have to know what those preferences are and Often the hardest task is going from a characterization of the strategic situation in sort of objective terms to what the actual game is. And that's a process which economists actually do, but it's, it's unmodeled. There's a few principles in it, but it's not something that anybody's worked on very systematically. And it's not something that the, that the psychologists are doing either. And so uh, I think that there needs to be more work by economists on issues of, of preference formation, but that there's a lot, there's a, there's a big role for them to learn from other disciplines in doing that as well. I don't know if that's... So, I mean, ju just to clarify, I mean, your idea would be to use the tools actually of other disciplines in this respect, such as, I don't know, neuroscience or psychology to inform the traditional economic... Uh, I actually think that the two, I actually think there's a big role that work is legitimate. It's already going on. I think it's a big role for using tools that are very similar to the tools economists use to extend 
the theories of preference formation that already exist with, uh, within e uh, economics. Uh, if one thinks about various kinds of models in terms of um, one can extend notions that I talked about of uh, consistency among preferences to various notions of uh, coherence. And there are, are formal models of coherence in terms of uh, constraint satisfaction. And you can really use certain maximizing tools there, which are similar to tools that uh, economists use to talk about ways that certain sets of preferences hold together better than other sets of preferences. So I think there's ways that specific tools of economics can be extended to deal with some of these issues. Uh, yeah, Richard, then uh, Julian. Um, so I'd like to say a bit more about your positive view. I mean, these subjective total comparative evaluations, yes. what, what are these evaluations if they're not judgments? Uh, they are judgments, but they're more than judgments because they're, uh, they directly determine choices. I mean, when we think of, I mean, this is obvious, I don't need to tell you, this is obviously very controversial stuff within um, action theory. But if you, if you think about this in a very sort of crude way, uh, you could say, okay, you know, here's your judgment, here are the various truths, uh, you know, why should I do one thing as opposed to another? And you can say, well, look, there's this, this, but that. What is it that actually gets me motivated, that pushes me? Where's the conative stuff? And preferences have this uh, conative aspect to them. But as I perceive preferences, uh, they're very close to judgments. But, uh, but we don't need anything other than preferences to uh, make us act. So, so, there's, so it's a, there's cognitive element to it, but also... Right. Yes. So, somehow it combines this mixture of the cognitive and connective. Right, right. Okay. Uh, and it does it in a very abstract way. It's not as if there's a substantive theory there. It's just that we've taken all the stuff which, out of which the preferences are constructed, and we've sort of said, okay, now we have the preferences. And uh, so it's in some ways massively unhelpful. But uh, uh, it has to be more than just judgment unless you take a view whereby judgment itself can motivate. Right. Yeah, Julian. I can't decide if this is a trivial point, so feel free to say it's not a trivial point. It just concerns one line you, you, um, yes. you said at the beginning, which was about the preferences, the preference theory is, is similar or the same as utility theory. And I was, uh, just, I was just thinking that, well, I can imagine a utility function with one argument, mm -hmm. one act unrealistic, but one can certainly imagine that. Mm -hmm. I suppose in a sense you're still saying that's a preference, because you're saying I prefer x to not x, or if the, if the utility function is monotonic and uh, increasingly monotonic, then you're saying I prefer more x to less x. But in that case, you're coming close to saying that, that I want or I desire something is the same as a I have a preference for it. Um. I'm not sure about the technicalities. I have to pause about this, but I'm not sure that you can have the the way I'm thinking of ordinal utility theory is extremely orthodox, whereby we've got various preferences concerning uh, we've got various axioms concerning preferences. We've got a representation theorem whereby we can uh, represent the preferences by a mathematical function, and we just call the index of preference uh, utility. 
and utility is nothing. It's not something that we want. It's not something that we want uh, in addition to world peace or anything like that. It's just simply a way of of, uh, of registering preferences. Uh, so if it's something which in fact derives from preferences and the preferences are always comparative, I'm not sure there could be a utility function. There could certainly be a utility function that has a single argument that has different quantities in it, but then we're comparing quantities of that one thing. But a utility function which is just that the utility of this is you know, 12 and there's nothing else I'm not sure that that actually is, uh, makes sense. I don't think you could have a, a utility function like that. I suppose you could say, uh, I, I drive utility from being alive. Is, that, is, is the comparison, the relevant comparison there, presumably just simply a prefer to be that? Yeah, I would think so. And so it's really to say that I desire something. It's really to say I prefer the state of having that thing to the state of not having um, that thing. Well, no, I, I don't think that's a good analysis of desire because uh, I can look at the dessert menu and say, boy, I, 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 I want the creme brulee, I, uh, you know, I, I want the chocolate mousse, and I'm saying both of those seriously, recognizing that I'm, in fact, only going to take one and that these wants are in conflict with one another and we'll have to get, you know, I'm going to have to make a choice, I'm going to have to decide you know which I which I prefer, so uh, I think want uh, I think wants are we can be much freer about wants when no no consistency constraints of that sort. Uh, yeah, um, Luke. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering actually whether you know if we're talking about these preferences. I mean, are they defined over token states or type states? Uh, um, because I mean, I was thinking about the game theories. Right. I mean, clearly, if it's over token states, I've got a problem. But if it's about, you know, well, there is non-asking versus asking and getting a no, mm -hmm. and these are the two types. Uh -huh. then, then it seems to me that we can think about revealed preference theory as long as we want the preferences to be defined over type states. And then maybe the more we act, the more the more we act, the more information there is, the more we can be precise over what kind of types of states the preferences uh -huh. hold between. And so maybe that's the way to think about it. Maybe we get to go wrong because we want it to be the case that these are defined over state, I mean, token states. Or well, I've always taken them as being defined over, uh, uh, over token states. Uh, We've got uh, uh, consumers who face uh, uh, who have got um, uh, a, a certain amount of income. There's a variety of different uh, bundles of uh, of consumption, and they're making a choice right then. And so it's it seems like it's uh, it's token. I hadn't thought about whether we could. Um, um, <coughs> I mean, if, we, if we're thinking about types, I mean, there's going to be, there'll certainly be some complexities. Uh, we've got the problem that people do sometimes change their preferences. That's going to be difficult. Um, I don't know what to think about that. I'll, 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 I'll have to think further about it. 
on my reading of the literature, it's it's all been uh, it's all supposed to be uh, uh, token, um, and it's not that uh, the uh, empirical basis patterns of choice over uh, you know uh, repeated. Yes. Yeah, so related to the discussion that you just had, um, mm -hmm. you are stressing that econ economics is looking at comparative right. evaluations, and indeed, if it takes the empiricist point of view, mm -hmm. there's no other thing than mm -hmm. comparisons to observe, strength of preference or strength of desire is completely out of the reach. But your approach seems to be, in principle at least, to allow an extension towards including strength. I wonder actually, if you take your definition and replace, just to delete the word comparative and say desires, uh, in economics are total uh, subjective evaluations, uh, and then you could maybe have an account of a utility function, uh, and not as a representation merely of, uh, of ordinal choice, but uh -huh. as a strength of desire, information, mm -hmm. which is information richer, of course, because it induces an ordinal uh, right. utility. Uh, I don't know of anything like that. Uh, and it seems to me something which would be um, likely to be very unappealing to uh, economists because, among other things, economists uh, and one of the things I think is very good about economics is uh, the emphasis that uh, in choosing one thing, you're always giving other things up, and one should think of the uh, the costs in terms of the other things uh, that uh, you're you're giving up. Um, exactly how one would measure strength of desire without, I mean, our metric for strength of desire is in economics, and I think in everyday life is often in terms of what do you give up for it. So there's an in intrinsic comparison there. If we're just measuring, I don't know exactly how we measure strength of desire by itself without thinking of sort of uh, uh, what is being um, uh, uh, passed up in terms of having more of one thing. Okay, I see the difficulty, of course, of measuring that we definitely need it. If we want to make distributional decisions, who should get this medication uh, and or if we want to, yeah, equality mm -hmm. issues, we need to compare levels and not just uh, intra-individual in ordinal comparisons. Oh, right, but but no, clearly we, we need, I mean, for health measurement, absolutely have to have at least interval, uh, uh, interval measures. But for that, we can we can get those out of preferences by you know adding additional axioms, and there's a a, a variety of different uh, different ways of uh, getting of uh, getting a grip of on strength uh, of preference, um, but uh, all those ways rely on uh, on uh, on preferences, on on the notion of preferences, not on the notion of just simple desire. You'll have to explain me this later. But not yeah. Sure. So you come back, but there's something I've Oh, but was there anyone else who hadn't okay. spoken up yet? Uh, forgive me, I should call so I, have, I have one question <coughs> about commitment to methodological individualism yes. out of there. Because if you go back to your example of going lunch with your aunt, uh -huh. it seems to me that 
the subjective desires of other people somehow play a role in mm -hmm. the preference function of the individual, right? And it does seems to me that, at least I take it to mean, mm -hmm. that the analysis at the level of individual might not always define choice as we see it. So how can we both <coughs> sort of relax that assumption and still be methodological individuals, I guess? Um, well, it seems to me that, although it may sometimes be awkward, uh, we can always model that in terms of its effect on, uh, on my preference. So let's suppose there's a very strong social norm of responsibility to, uh, to your family. Uh, and that that's something which is uh, quite, a, quite a, a independent of me and has a, an effect on me. That can nevertheless be modeled this way by simply being, you know, uh, that's going to be reflected in features of, uh, of, of my preferences. Sure, but then you just, that's sort of the same move as just saying economist preference, preference and belief is the same thing, right? You just conflate. Well, no, it's, uh, it's to, to believe that, well, I mean, to believe that there is this norm, of course, doesn't in any way motivate me one way or another. To believe that one ought, that it's a, you know, that uh, one ought to be nice to your aunt or whatever, that, that belief, is, those kinds of normative beliefs are going to actually be built into your, uh, built into your preferences. They're factors that determine your preferences, but they're also going to be manifest within your preferences. So if you have the belief that people ought to be nice to their great aunts or whatever, that, and when your great aunt in, invites you to uh, lunch, you always say no and go off or whatever, then there's going to be a, uh, a tension or inconsistency uh, within, between your beliefs and your preferences. So the belief, th that kind of belief will be manifested within your preferences, provided that you have this kind of internal coherence or, broadly speaking, co consistency. Okay, but do you believe in that internal coherence? Um, that's, that's how things are going to be modeled here. Do I think that people actually are internally coherent? Well, maybe if they're not like me. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we strive for a certain kind of coherence with differing, you know, some people it matters to more than another, but to actually achieve it is, I think, uh, not that easy. Uh, anyone else that hasn't spoken up? The last question. <coughs> um, I may be missing the point, in which case cut me off, but um, these are subjective comparative evaluations, and I think my question is of what? This is meant to span highly altruistic people, right. highly self-motivated right. people, for whom the proximate judgment before choice will be, this is good for me, or this isn't public interest. Right. And thirdly, it should span the people who don't actually know how altruistic or selfish they are, right. and who only discover that through what they choose, which is probably most of us. So what do you have a, a term for what it is that the sort of proximate judgment precipitating choice is that would span the altruistic? Well, uh, the, uh, the idea is that uh, this really had, uh, a lot of this uh, is involved with this word total here. So the idea is that we're taking into account every consideration that, that we count as relevant. So 
I'm not supposing in order to have preferences you've been enormously thoughtful and have considered everything or whatever. It might be that you're a very careless person and you only consider certain things or whatever. That's, that's all fine here. But you haven't left out anything that you think is relevant to, uh, uh, to the evaluation of, uh, of the alternatives. So some people may be totally self-interested. Some people may be altruistic. Uh, some people may have, you know, no particular idea uh, what, what, uh, uh, wh uh, where they stand. But the idea, but uh, uh, you know, with this, it's a very highly idealized model within uh, uh, economics of where people have uh, taken into account everything that they think is relevant, and they somehow or other put everything into a single huge ranking. And so that's the name of that rankings. There isn't that they're preferences. Perfect last words, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh let's thank Dan now.